0: These days, there's so many people, there's so many travelers, uh, it's very difficult to go somewhere that no one has ever been. It's like actually quite hard. Neil Armstrong managed (laughs) it, but most of us can't, right?
1: Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today I talk with journalist and historian Tony Parate, whose 2002 book Pagan Holiday was the source for a lot of the historical examples of ancient Roman travel I allude to in The Vagabond's Way. I am, by the way, discussing issues from The Vagabond's Way each month at Nomadic Network's online book club. Details on that can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. I'll also mention that I'll be doing a travel giveaway in tandem with Random House and my longtime friends and sponsors like Airtrex and Tortuga Packs and Unbound Merino. The sweepstakes will involve the chance to win free plane tickets and travel gear. I'd love it if Deviate listeners won some of those prizes, so please check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate for information on how to enter. For now, please enjoy my conversation with Tony Perate, which took place in his apartment in New York City's East Village late last year. Together we talk about how some aspects of travel haven't changed in 2,000 years, and how historians who don't travel to the landscapes they're writing about do themselves and their readers a disservice. I start by reading Tony an entry from The Vagabond's Way that quotes his writing about travel in the ancient world. Let's listen in. I'm going to start this out by reading uh, the chapter that quotes you, which is the January 27th chapter, it's called why you go someplace is less important than just going. And the epigraph is one of my weirder epigraphs. It's from the Little Brown Book of Anecdotes, 1985. It says, photographer Yusuf Karsh and his wife were having lunch with astronaut Neil Armstrong after a photo session. Armstrong politely questioned the couple about the many different countries they had visited. But Mr. Armstrong, protested Karsh, you've walked on the moon. We want to hear about your travels. But that's the only place I've ever been, replied Armstrong apologetically. And so the, um, the body of the chapter is, is as such. For the aristocratic Roman tourists who traveled the Mediterranean seaboard two millennia ago, choosing which places to visit was the least difficult aspect of the journey. For those tourists, the whole point of travel was to go where everyone else was going, wrote Tony Paratay in his 2002 book Pagan Holiday. Sightseeing was a form of pilgrimage. While Western tourists have developed a far more individualistic system of travel motivations over the past 2,000 years, postmodern pilgrimage may well come in the form of movie tourism. Star Wars buffs who visit the Moroccan desert to feel as if they're on the desert planet Tatooine or Game of Thrones fans who stroll the streets of Dubrovnik imagining they're at King's Landing. Yet as an interest in the Indiana Jones films might lead to an appreciation for Nabataean history or Bedouin cuisine while envisioning the last crusade in Jordan's rock city Petra, most engaged travelers find far more than they dreamed of seeing when they were first deciding where in the world they might wander. If in doubt, the reasons that inspire you to visit a certain place are less important than leaving yourself open to what you discover when you arrive there. To paraphrase a sentiment often attributed to Alice in Wonderland author Lewis Carroll, if you're never exactly sure where you're going, any road will take you there. So you're sort of, I consider you an expert on the ways Roman tourists traveled 2000 years ago. Uh, And there's some weird motivations that tie into their travels and oftentimes they travel to places because other tourists are traveling to places Which feels strangely modern in a way.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's two traditions of travel and and the, the, The tension between them is what the book is about and so like in ancient Roman times they really wanted to see the most extraordinary places, you know, and there was a consensus of where they were. So you'd go from Rome, you'd go down to the Bay of Naples, you know, which uh, was you know, incredibly beautiful, but it had all these Homeric connotations. they go to Greece, which was like the the great birthplace of, uh, of the gods, uh, so it was dense with uh, all these mythological references. They'd go to Troy, and then they'd go down to um, the pyramids in, um, in Egypt and go down the Nile. So there's this, this consensus and uh, the, yeah, the, the real point was uh, then you go home and you'd be able to share have this shared experience. And this model really, you know, the, the pilgrims in the Middle Ages did the same sort of thing. In the 18th century, the grand tourists uh you know, the English who would go down they they had a very sp- specific itir- itinerary. They go to they'd go to Paris, they go to Rome, uh you know, and then down to Naples. And so uh the ancient romans really invented this grand tour model that's why you know in, you know the, the ancient roman grand tour that's what i refer to a lot it's it's only later so like in the 19th century we have this romantic model uh people going around they want some sort of individual uh, experience you sort of commune with often with nature in the mountains in switzerland but you want you are trying to go to all these places to be the first person to be the only person who's there and this this tension between them it, a lot of travel writing these days is, i think is actually about that because These days, there's so many people, there's so many travelers, it's very difficult to go somewhere that no one has ever been. It's like actually quite hard. Neil Armstrong managed it. But, uh, but most of us can't, right? Uh, even the Explorers Club, they used to have the, you know, the one in New York, they yeah. used to have this requirement that you discovered some geographical place. But there's just none left. You know, it's like he's maybe at the bottom of the ocean in the Pacific or something. But really, so they've had to change their criteria to get into the Explorers Club. But there's tension. Uh, so a lot of books are about, for example, going to the highlands of New Guinea and finding an ATM machine. Or whatever, or uh, you know, going to um, you know the the wilds of the, the Sahara and, and being shocked that everyone's got cell phones or whatever. And so in fact, it's uh, you know it's, it's actually kind of impossible to have that romantic thing. But that, so there's that tension. And me as a travel writer, uh, when I was before I set off on this book, on this on this trip. I had studied Latin, I'd studied ancient history, uh, but I'd never been to the Mediterranean. I'd been to Tierra Tierra del Fuego three times. I'd been to, uh, I'd lived in South America, I'd lived in Africa, I'd been to all these other places, uh, you know, the the deepest regions of the outback. Uh, So it was, and I'd always not wanted to go, because like, Rome? You know, everyone goes to Rome. You know, it's kind of, uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to find that's unique in Rome? Uh, And then I came up with this idea of going back to the ancient Romans and sort of following them, which at the time was, you know, you know people didn't really know about it. It was kind of a surprise to hear that ancient Romans had been tourists and all. So there was something sort of satisfying in going, you know, going to this tradition and following the Romans who were quite happy to go to the Colosseum, to go to uh, you know, the Parthenon, to go to uh, the pyramids. Uh, and that it didn't bother them that it was sort of chaotic, and that you know the, that uh, there were souvenir vendors and there were other tourists. So I wasn't fleeing the tourists; I was joining the tourists. I was celebrating this sort of shared tradition. But of course, the, you know, the trick is that most people—the you know, research I was doing on the ancient Romans was actually quite original. So I was actually—I was actually having a unique experience and a unique insight um, by dredging up all this sort of. Uh, like Lionel Casson is, you know, is is a—he relies on a guy named and the no- German guy in the 19th century finding all this kidding? sort of huh. yeah there's this four volume thing about travel and you know so there's extremely arcane sort of stuff and then if you go back to the original sources you can find all this hilarious stuff about uh uh what it was like to travel for, you know back in you know the first and second centuries ad uh and the comical connections because um, uh they you know the, the patterns the structure of tourism uh, hasn't really changed. I mean, there's the, basically, you've got to go to a place. You've got to find a place to sleep. You've got to find a place to eat. You're kind of a stranger. You've got to figure out how to get your money. You know, you, all this sort of the, the basic framework hasn't changed. The technology has changed. You know, but uh, uh, you had to send letters, or you know, and, and try and find friends of friends, and uh, and, and you get. I loved the stories of them going to the, the inns, and like there's all these complaints about how you know how shabby they were, and how you know um, miserable the smells, and the, you know the terrible landlords, and all this, you know. It, and then they'd go down to dinner, and you know the, the annoying strangers would be there, and like Plutarch would hum to himself to drown out the drivel of the other you know other people in the restaurant. So there's this is basic structure of um, you know because you are sort of vulnerable and alone as a traveller in in a sense. You You've got to figure things out. Uh, you can do as try as you might. You know, you're, there's still that basic thing and having to deal with the locals. You know, stuff like that. So anyway, that's what the book's about.
1: Yeah, lots to think about. That you were talking about the funny things you found. Like I read the Lionel Casson book, and I'll put these all these books, including yours, in the show notes. Um, but I read the story of Winnemann, the, the, um, the ancient Egyptian traveler, and he's such a bumbler. And it was so funny that I made a little comic book about Winnemann <laughs> because it seems so modern that instead of this heroic mythic traveler from Egyptian times, he was just this knucklehead who kept making mistakes. Yeah. And it's, so, it's funny how uh, you know, studying through history, you can find funny things. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of like you in that um, I started my global travels in Asia, and I entered Europe from the east. And I was sort of proud of of not going to these European capitals that all the other young people went to until I went to them. And then I realized, oh, Paris is actually an amazing place, you know. Um, And so it's interesting that that idea that I guess there's a lot of shorthand. There's like, oh, travelers versus tourists or that that goes back to to Roman times. Was there much of a travel industry in Roman times?
0: An incipient version because I mean, really, uh, it was like the top one percent. You know who are travelers because it's, it's obviously a very structured society and uh, but to have the wealth uh, to travel around um, uh, the Mediterranean you had to have the time and the, and the and the funds so it tended to be aristocrats it tended to be more males um, you know it's kind of a sexist Empire I guess uh, but there were women who would travel around and, um, and, and and as Christianity took off as well there were often a lot of quite wealthy women who would go to the uh, the Far East or whatever in the Near East and um, but, uh, but, yeah, it, it seems like it's such a, you know, it's a 1% thing. But I think they've done studies on who can take leisure travel these days. And it's like, you know, it seems like, you know, oh, everyone's going backpacking around. But, you know, if you look at on a global level, it's really like 2% of the mm. world population mm. that can afford to go and, like, hang out, you know, for a few months traveling around or a few weeks even. So it's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting like that.
1: Yeah, I guess um, a huge percentage of Germans travel, but not Bangladeshis, right? Not so
0: many. No, the Nigerians are keeping close to home, yeah.
1: Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, So it it feels like we use the the term group tour as sort of a pejorative these days. Um, Was there such a thing as an independent traveler in ancient Rome, or were those just the, the guys working on boats who had no choice?
0: They were pretty independent, actually, because okay. they The didn't, Romans were. Yeah, yeah, in the sense of, like, you know, you would go off with, you know, maybe with one friend or something like that. I mean, Horace uh, has a great poem about going along the Arpian Way, um, you know, down to Brindisi. He's got a couple of friends and, and, you know, just basically walking. It's a very funny one. He sort of goes there and he stays, you know. It's like a classic thing. He goes there, he, he arranges to meet some girl who stands him up and he's like, and then he gets to some eye problem and he's, like, bitching about it. It's like, so the whole thing kind of sucks, you know. And this is the Queen of Highways, whatever. And, uh, but yeah, they they would travel around relative. They didn't like to. Go, they didn't necessarily do the movement like in a bus tour or anything. You know, um, they still had to arrange individually to uh, to, to walk or to um, you know they would uh, you know or go on horseback. Uh, or the or carts, or and you know the the luxury carts, uh, and you, you reference those. They, they would put in some money. You know they were extremely expensive, but you know these you know, they'd be padded, you know, and you know and quite sumptuous. So you could just like toodle along. There's one that's depicted in the movie Gladiator, um, the uh, in the emperor. You know would get around you know with his sister uh, in in one of these things So is it like sort of like a a covered wagon or a stagecoach but
1: with like goblets and servants or the
0: whole bit. Yeah, well the servants wouldn't be in the carriage with you They'd have have their you know, they'd be trudging along elsewhere. So you'd have the whole thing to yourself but very you know silk and pillows and uh, You probably wouldn't try and it's still even though the roads were amazing though You know the 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 highways and and many of them still exist um, beautifully crafted uh, you know, famously uh, and straight you would still be sort of like bouncing along a little bit You know, so you wouldn't probably be having you know, having your wine there, you know uh, You probably need a sippy cup or something <laughs> but um, but, uh, uh, but they would stop and then the, the servants would set up a tent, you know And there'd be a feast and whatever and you know, and often uh, they weren't that particularly, adv- you know they, they, they knew what they liked to eat. They didn't necessarily go, you know looking for uh, e- you know, exotic cuisine, but um uh, but yeah, it was. And, but it take uh, it was kind of a project as well to do that. It would take uh, it t- it'd take weeks you know, sometimes to go on, But or you could um, hire your own boat. You could you could join on join up on a merchant uh, a ship if you wanted to, uh, or you could just hire your own. You know, if you're rich enough, hire your own boat to take you to to Greece, um, or of from you know Troy down to uh, down to um, Egypt, where you could then hire a, a river craft. In fact, in Egypt, you know, it's the, the, the things There's a particular case of, I was just there, you know, in June, and it's, it's just I was struck again how. We really are doing exactly the same things because because Egypt of, of all the places is so structured, you know, it's because the Nile is there, and you know mm. you got you got the pyramids up top, you got Luxor and Aswan down the bottom. It's, you want to take a cruise, um, Alexandria, you know, is it used to be much more the place to arrive, you know, because um, the uh, uh, because it was done by 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 sea. Uh, these days you tend to fly into. Um, into uh, Cairo, but um, which is that? Actually, you know, Herodotus, when he came, Alexandria wasn't invented. You know, it wasn't created. Alexander the Great hadn't built it. So the boats would go to um, Memphis in the area, mm. where, which is basically where Cairo is now. I mean, you know, it's sort of buried in a certain area, but there's uh, their excavating. You know, the places where they would land, and then you would sort of get your crews and go down. So um, yeah, you could get around almost everywhere. But you just had to have have to have a little time on your hands. Yeah,
1: there wasn't a carnival
0: cruise going around. No carnival cruise. Uh, and so, yeah, it was all, very, all kind of haphazard. It's the same, you know. Even in the 18th century, you know, you, you read about it. It's like, you know, Byron coming, you know, getting down to Paris. It's like, you know, from London is a, a huge project. You've got to slip down to the coast, find a boat that's going down, and then you've got to get the... You know. So, in fact, travel in the 18th century was harder than for the... Than uh, for the, the Romans? For the Romans, oh. because the roads were so shitty, right? And... Um, You know, so you get your stagecoach mired in the mud. And, sort of, you know, it was only really until the the railroads come in, you know, and the the steamships, suddenly there's a, you know, it's a huge jump. and And people are, like, zooming around all over the place. But before that, you really needed to, you know, getting down to... And Shelley and and, and his and, and his wife Mary Shelley the um, wrote Frankenstein getting from down to Switzerland major project you know and it's like and there and it's a little dangerous in certain areas so you wanted to go in like groups um, you know I was just reading about Washington Irving you know in uh, Spain then they had then they started to have these little uh, group tours because to, you know the highwaymen were out so you'd have to go in a group of like 20 or 30 people with you know rifles and the whole bit mm. anyway
1: Well, it's funny that we talk about um, there's the grand tourist, but tourist became a pejorative, I think, around the time of the railroads when it was no longer aristocratic, a more dangerous aristocratic profession. When the middle class hoi polloi was coming, then suddenly the word tourist you could, you're the historian, so you know this better, but I get this sense that tourism became seen as an undesirable thing after it became possible and easier for. The normal person to
0: do so, yeah, the the famous cooks tours and whatever, and it was like, uh, yeah, I mean, but that coincides with the romantic vision taking off. So trying to sort of separate your experience from everyone else's, and you say so you've got the middle class, you know, and they, and they're just they're just riffraff. So it's a lot of it's sort of. Uh, embedded English social snobbery. <laughs> so yes. that it sort of was, became sort of um, concrete in travel, you mm. know. So I guess then the, the wealthy can just, you know, create new, new little bubbles, and, which they're still doing today. God, I mean, if you see some of the, you know, the, tra- the, you know, the jets, private jet journeys to you know and all these special exclusive experiences set up you know in the um in the mountains of bhutan or whatever you know it's like all these little little pods you can stay in um uh so this it's almost like the rich are always trying to you know separate themselves somehow from uh from the masses i've read that bit like billionaires, bil- billionaires are interested
1: in exclusivity as much as geography. You know, yeah. wherever they go, having it to themselves is is important. I don't know who I'm quoting there, but yeah. I've, heard, I've heard about that.
0: I would believe it, and it's sort of. A, and of course, the irony is that this sort of isolation um, probably makes the places. You know more the same so it's like you're gonna be mm. by yourself in the Himalayas or whatever, you know, it's like you got the, the, the natural beauty I suppose but uh, uh, Often there's a, the, the buffer with the you know the people there and the actual experience um, Now I've often been struck by you know if you're going off on these you know to these You know supposedly super luxury places that uh, uh, they can seem Sort of generic in their own way, and uh, and it's sort of like an un- it becomes less memorable the trip. Whereas if you have to you know really figure things out, and there's a sort of an you know an engagement with things. Then then that's closer to real experience. And you know um, the existentialists talk about that a bit. You know uh, that there's you know the, the, there's a sort of a metaphor of being sort of dumped in a in a uh, strange city, and you've got to figure it out. You know if you're in an, then you know Uh, then you're sort of totally looking at everything, you know, in a very sort of alert, alive way. So it's like, um, even in one of my meditation tapes, they talk about that, to try and, you know, look at things as if you're, you know, you can walk down, you know, like in some suburban place in um, Berlin or whatever, but it's sort of fascinating because it's like, oh my God. And you're sort of like, and if you're a little bit lost, then it's sort of like you are really sort of alert because there's a the possibility that, you know, you won't find your way out. And, and, and so then you really, I mean, you're sort of really alive in a sense. Yeah,
1: there's something I come back to a lot in The Vagabond's Way in different contexts because you don't have to be a billionaire to sort of end up being buffered from your experience by the travel industry itself. You know, you are in Bali, but you're in a hotel that looks like it could be in Las Vegas in a certain right. sense. Right. Maybe not in Bali because there's these boutiquey things happening there, but... Um, the travel industry is all about buffers. It's all about creating this, this liminal space one to another. And so a lot of the themes here in, in my book are about, well, just go for a walk and just see what you see. Or um, sure, you have a, a bucket list of things to do, but what can you discover when you're already there?
0: Right, yeah, a lot of the, yeah, the industry is it's, it's to avoid, removes any uncertainty, mm-hmm. you know, so that, like, and now with the internet, it's even, you know, the way people travel is so different to, like, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, because, you know, um, I the first time I went to South America or to India, you, you know, you just sort of, you don't, you don't know where you're going to stay, you just land, and you like, you'd go, you would have your little guidebook and sort of go, okay, you know, and that's, that hotel might be full, but there might, there might be another one, Um in India, they've got a slightly better setup. I remember. It would always be like... if Because if there was one successful backpacker place, there'd be like 10. And I said, you're going to find something. But I remember in Buenos Aires, it's like, you know... Uh, and I was lucky I met someone on the plane and who said, like, you yeah, know, come stay in my place. So, you know, so it was... Because and, and, who was so amazed? I didn't know where you know where I was going to stay. But um, but now... I mean, I don't know the last time i lobbed into a place without knowing more or less where I'm going to stay. You know, because it's like you just... You know, you're going to find out and book it online, um, which is just such a different experience.
1: Well, it used to be a, the normal thing. That My backpacker career started when you go to the backpacker ghetto and you negotiate for hotels. You see, you walk in, you see the room, you know that there's going to be another hotel up the block or maybe a couple miles away. And that's part of your day. It's probably more efficient when you plan your travels off your phone. But there was something special about wandering around and sort of haggling for your room, because you can in, in most of the non-industrialized world, the, the price of the room is variable. And if you say, yeah, this room is nice, but it's sort of close to the spire of the mosque, and so it's going to be noisy, and so you can you knock some price off you know, a, a little bit. Uh, and that's, that's interesting how that, that has changed and shifted. We talked about Rome, actually, uh, not Rome, but uh, we talked about Cairo. And um, my first experience was talking to an Australian backpacker who I was sharing a cab with, and the two of us wandered around and I found one of my favorite uh, backpacker hostels ever, the the Sultan Hotel in Cairo. I wrote a chapter of of my book, uh, Marco Polo's Didn't Go There, is about this place. And that was a total delightful surprise. Speaking of Egypt, um, what did, you know, Egypt has been hosting travelers or tourists for more than probably any place in the world, except maybe for a few pilgrimage sites in India.
0: So what did Romans seek
1: there 2,000 years ago? What did they do?
0: Well, Egypt was sort of the land of the dead. It was sort of this extraordinary place where uh it was undeniable that everything was way older than they had back in rome or in greece or anywhere so there was the idea of that was where the gods were born in a way they sort of came out of there and it was such a mysterious place they had a cult of the of the dead you know the the, the mummification um the sort of the, the the gods you know the underworld this whole thing and there's this river that rises and falls uh without any rain and so it's kind of a magical place. And so they were going to experience all that sort of thing. So they would start off going, going to the pyramids, uh, which in those days uh, had this limestone coping, this covering. So they gleamed like icebergs on the, you know, on the out of the sand. And they'd be like, and they were covered in these giant sort of messages, this you know, these these hieroglyphics. And when they go there, they, they, they'd love to hire professional stonecutters and, and, and engrave something, you know, engrave a little message that, you know, that they had been there. And, like, I was amazed. And then there's another one, I was more than amazed. You know, it's like, you know, so they, so they would see that, and they would go inside, because by that stage, by the time, uh, you know, the first, second centuries AD, you know, the, they'd all been pillaged and robbed or whatever. So... um. Uh, then they would take the Nile cruise uh, and marveling at the crocodiles and the palm trees, and it was it was you know it was, it was a, was a very beautiful and bizarre place. And they would go down to Luxor. Uh, there they would rush off to the um, the Valley of the Kings, and you know which was like covered in you know this beautiful coloured hieroglyphics. Um, they might visit visit a mummification shop because then they were still mummifying all through the you know the Greek and Roman age. Uh, and they just thought that was, you know, grotesque and bizarre. So they would watch dead bodies being mummified? Sure, sure. I mean, there's these shops where they're doing it. Like, it's like factories, hmm. you know, because they're you know, when you're dead. In, and they found, they, and they, in, in the, in the, in the, the Greeks started a tradition where when you were being mummified, they give you a little painting, a little portrait on your face uh, and then sort of wrap you up and put you in the desert. So there's thousands of these mummies that sort of turn up, you know, and they've got these amazing portraits and they're quite, um, quite lifelike. And if you go to the Met... For example, they've got collections. They call the Fayum portraits. The Fayum was the driest of the dry places, and they've got these incredibly lifelike. In fact, in my book, I think I put like six or eight of them there because it's like men, women. There's the, there's the New York siren in the background. That's all the, the, the <laughs> texture for the yeah. listeners, um, you know. And they, but they're very vivid, and you can just look into their faces and like, God, like, they kind of look like us compared to say looking at marble busts because when you see the marble busts you know this sort of the blank eyes and the white uh, of course in, in in antiquity they were painted hmm, you know colorfully hmm. painted and given cheek color so so that, that's sort of a modern illusion um but but anyway, going back to the paintings, you know, they were, they were, the mummification, they were like it was you know this gory, grisly thing, and you know Anubis, the you know the jackal-headed god, and this sort of misty, misty sort of thing. But then, uh, they, but their favourite thing down there was uh, the statues of Memnon. These two statues there, were seated, because they thought it was the god Memnon who was. Um, the son of Aurora, who went to you know, to, uh, who came from Ethiopia, this uh, the goddess of the dawn. He went to fight in Troy and got killed. But he um, and so there's these two statues. In fact, it's of some you know, old kingdom pharaoh. But you know, they didn't know they didn't, they weren't really that interested hmm. because it, um, it it had a sort of a strange defect where uh, it, air would get trapped inside it, and when the when the sun came up, it would let out this sort of whistle or this sort of sigh. And because the air expanding, and they thought this was the uh, Memnon greeting his mother, the, the goddess Dawn, every morning. So everyone, like even the Emperor Hadrian, slept down to this place, and they would wait out there at dawn. And um, sometimes it didn't work, and Hadrian got really bummed. That it, it didn't work a couple of times, so he had to keep going back, and then it finally did. You know, and it's like, and it, but it's like, yeah, it's like a, it's described as sort of like a bit of a whistle. It's just like, Hoo-hoo-hoo. and that was kind of like, wow. Um, but uh, and then if, if they, would, they would they would keep going down to Aswan and that was where uh, the, the, the navigable Nile sort of ends and uh, there was the temple Philae and other, other things that were right on this sort of beautiful elephantine uh, rocks and that was kind of the End of the line, as it pretty well is today. I mean, um, a lot. You know, the, the the dam the dam there has actually changed the uh, structure of the river a little the bit. The lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they had to actually transfer this giant, you know, uh, Abu Simbel, uh, uh, so it wouldn't be just underwater. Well, it would have been kind of cool. It a great diving attraction. <laughs> but, uh, Keep the water clean enough yeah. to see it. But, um, so that was this thing. And, and they would actually arrive in Alexandria, which itself was sort of a, you know, right up in the Mediterranean, because it had the, uh, the lighthouse uh, there, which was one of the wonders of the world, and you could glimpse it. So it's all very exciting, all very dramatic.
1: Yeah, well, I, I've been taking notes as you're talking, and literally I did a backpacker version of this 20 years ago. The pyramids, the cruise. It was a Felucca cruise for me. Uh, Wealthier tourists in that day would have those formal tourist cruises up and down. Luxor, Aswan. I didn't see anybody mummified when I was in Egypt, but I did see the mummies in the Egyptian museum. So it sounds like it's like 90, 80, 90% the same. As it was two thousand years ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. E- Egypt is, is is the classic one because it's literally the you know the geography hasn't changed, <laughs> the, the, and everyone's still interested in the same things. You know the, the you know, uh, but the, the most ex- but the thing that I you know found interesting on this last trip is um, it was the Wall Street Journal magazine. They wanted to send me to Egypt to write you know a, a, a story about travel there, and I was like. I don't want to get back. I, I was there 20 years ago. I've seen the pyramids. I've seen the Valley of the Kings. I don't, why, why do I need to go back? And uh, I was talking to a dude in, um, in Cairo, an Egyptian guy, and he said, well, yeah, um, in, in that sense, you know, yeah, you're not going to see anything different there. But uh, Egypt itself, you know, the, has changed incredibly. This, you know, uh, he said, well, if, you, if you happen to come this day, there's actually there's a party at the Pyramids. It's the Young Egyptian Entrepreneurs Awards. And there's, you go there, and you, I'll get you in. And so I was like, oh, all right. So I went to that, and they had this giant party there. And it's all Egyptians there who are like, you know, there's Egyptian movie stars, Egyptian rock stars, Egyptian, you know, musicians. And there's like, they're all singing, and, there's, and they've got this version of the Academy Awards. And they're giving, um, you know, awards to, like, someone who's developed a, a falafel delivery service in Cairo. And I'm like, wow, this app. And it's like, oh man, this is awesome. You know, and uh, we were there and just sort of like this. you know, this fascinating experience with the, the spotlit pyramids behind us. So that was kind of like, oh, wow, this is, uh, this is kind of amazing. And then the more uh, I stayed, the more I sort of just met more and more people there. And they, um, you know, put me in touch. There was this, a design group, an Egyptian design group, who's got this beautiful um, office, you know, there, this showroom, and this exquisite, and using sort of ancient motifs in their modern, you know, in their very contemporary designs, things like that. And then you'd go out to some market where you buy, you know, and, you know, things from like 1910, you know, just there, you know, carburetors. I don't know, what, you know all this sort of stuff. It was, it was, it was just a, it ended up being quite a fascinating experience.
1: No, I love that. And it makes, I, I'm very fond of Egypt. It make, sort of makes me want to go back because in a sense, you know, there's this old school of travel writing where you look for the most traditional thing when you go to a place when in fact what is actually happening in a place like Egypt or India or whatever those both of those countries being good examples that basically there's a version of TED talks or you know south by southwest going on the young people who live there aren't as interested in the pyramids as this there's a new app that's being designed yeah. i think to experience these these countries is sometimes to sort of stumble into the Silicon Valley equivalent of what's going on in that culture.
0: Yeah, I find that really fascinating because, like, Rome is the classic, is a classic one because you go there, you know, everyone's interested in, you know, I, I was very interested in the Colosseum and the Forum and whatever, but Romans, you know, it's all, it's just part of the background. It's part of the texture of the city. Mm, they don't particularly, mm. you know, it's nice, it's amazing to see it, you know, And but you catch it out of the, sort of, the corner of your eye in a way. And Fellini, um, the last scene in, uh, in Roma it's sort of like this classic thing Everyone, him and his these friends are going around on a Vespa just driving around and the you know the Colosseum's there this is you know the Trajan's you know arch whatever you know all these extraordinary things but they're just sort of in the background you know and um, you know and I was talking to another friend and I was like well, you know where can you go to a restaurant where it's sort of in an ancient setting and she was like uh, you know Romans don't into that <laughs> like you right. know like, they're like you know you go into someone's Cellar, and there's like mosaics or whatever, and it's like, so you don't sort of necessarily seek seek them out. There is like, there's a restaurant called Dark Pancrazio I was asking her about, and that was is in the theater of Pompey where Julius Caesar got stabbed. And she was kind of like, Oh, yeah, Romans would never go to that. <laughs> it's like, we were like, Why? You know, and it's like, uh, uh yeah, so it, I, yeah, I, and, you know, I just love that it's sort of, it's sort of in their, it's it's already in in their blood or in their sort of imaginations, you know, it's in their world. They don't just go and seek it out. It's just, they don't have to. Well,
1: it feels like as travelers, we often seek out a story we've
0: heard about a place. So when we go to Rome, we want
1: to see Roman stuff. When we go to Egypt, we want to see these giant monuments. uh, When in fact, um, the the true story of a place is much more complicated than that. And the people who live there have long since stopped hanging out arbitrarily at, at old monuments, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really, it really is. Ancient history is kind of you know, uh, so yeah. But you know, we're still looking at these mythic ages can be kind of fun. It's like a it's a prism of the way, of the way to see a city. So in Rome. Uh, you know, it's, it's got so many layers. In fact, um, Freud uses a sort of a, as a metaphor for the human memory, because it's like, you, you can, if you want to, you can choose to look at the ancient, or you can look at the medieval, or you can look at the 19th century, or whatever. You can sort of like, you know, it's like a prism or a kaleidoscope, you can see, uh, or a palimpset, you know, you can see uh, whichever level you want. So it can be quite, it was quite fun to go to Rome and say, okay, I'm really going to pay attention to the ancient stuff, and sort of you know, reconstructed imaginatively or whatever. Or if you go to Paris, I often think of like the, the Belle Epoque as sort of its mythic time in a way, and where, you know, restaurants in New York try and evoke the sort of 1890s in Paris or whatever. And, uh, and if you go there, but what's the most interesting thing? It was sort of the, um, they, the, the, everyone at the time, you know, thought it was amazing that the brothels were all open there and legal. And yeah, so the, the, the brothels of Paris became super famous uh, in the, you know, people would travel from all over the world, uh, men, I guess, but, uh, uh, but not, in, not exclusively, there were um, uh, brothels for women as well. So, um, uh, but they all got shut down after the Second World War and by, by uh, de Gaulle. And but yet they're still around, and no one really you know, knew where they were. But I found a guidebook to the brothels of Paris, you know, and so going around, and looking at looking at that, you know, and, and that's kind of like an unusual prism, you know, to to, to look at things, or uh, or Casanova's Venice, you know, to go there and to read Casanova and to try and find, you know, Venice again is another, you know, very unusual. It's probably an even more unusual one than um, Rome because it's like it's. it's hasn't changed that much from the 18th century. So you can actually find, uh, uh, you know, a bar where Casanova went or, you know, the canal, walk along exactly the same canal. And it really has, you know, know, they haven't put in any highways. They haven't put in any, you know, they've got a train station. But, you know, basically it's sort of the same. So so anyway, there's, there's just different ways of looking at things.
1: Yeah, no, it sparked off like five different ideas as we were talking. In fact, I was recently reading about Casanova, about how he was, a part of a subset of Grand Tourists who were sort of hustlers. You know, there, there were people who were on the fringes of the Grand Tour who were sort of using that community to further their own interests.
0: Sure, he was a great adventurer and a gambler and a con artist and, you know, and a, a writer and whatever, so he was... I mean, he covered thousands of miles around Europe. If, if you look at, you know, if you draw up a map of, you know, where he went, it was extraordinary. Um, you know, and on the, these terrible stagecoaches and rotten roads and whatever, and so it would, you know the, he's you know going along for days and you know like uh, in this smelly, hot, crowded, cramped stagecoaches, so he's kind of heroic some of his some of his just, but he makes it to he makes it you know to St Petersburg, he makes it to Madrid, he's in London, you know and um yeah he, he and moving in these circles so uh, uh these aristocratic circles, but he himself was not really of that group, so he's sort of, yeah, he's insinuating himself in, so, um, but meeting, you know, Catherine the Great, meeting, you know, whatever, and, uh, um, so his, so his book is really an amazing travel book as well, and you can read it, um, you know, to learn the, you know, the mechanics, the, log- the logistics of travel in the 18th century. It's all there, you know, you know the, the, the road houses, you know, which you can get to eat, you know, it's like, mm, uh, mm. You know uh, where you can stay in, in London, where you can stay in Paris, whatever. Um, so, so a lot of fun like that. Yeah, these classic eras of tourism,
1: including the Grand Tour, which was a mostly British thing in the, 7th, in the 18th century, 19th century, mm-hmm. In the Roman uh, tours years ago, they sort of, they show these patterns of how people react to travel and how people get around in travel. And I, I quote, I think, Goethe in the book, I don't know if I found this through you or th- through another source, but he was sort of bummed by how his fellow tourists were really obsessed with the past in Rome. And it, it felt a little bit dead to him. Right. I think it was Gerta. Um But did, was there a similar cynicism a, a, a thousand years before, I mean, were the
0: Romans bummed ever by the the, the history? Or I mean, they could be disappointed by a site not living up to its, you know, as being as extraordinary or as beautiful or as sort of. Uh, I mean, they weren't quite so much into nature and, and views, uh, but you know, and since it was largely an imaginary sort of thing, you know, this mythological thing, it's kind of like uh, So they go to the you know the Acropolis in Athens, and they rush up. They they didn't they didn't care about. The Parthenon. They rushed to this place where um, uh, King Aegeus was sitting and he, he had told his son Theseus, uh, who went off to fight, fight the Minotaur, um, and when, he, when he comes back, or when the boat comes back, if he was successful to have a white uh, sail and if he'd been killed to have a black sail. Theseus I mean, he probably should have gone to see a shrink for, you know, for He puts up a black sail. He forgets. So, uh, <laughs> so his father throws himself off this cliff from the Acropolis, and so that's where tourists, you know, the Roman tourists would like to go and see this spot, you know, because there's a connection with this myth- a direct connection with mythology. Or they would go into you know temples were like museums. They would show off you know Achilles' armor or the sword of uh, Ulysses or uh, you know or something. You know, the Helen, you know, a, a cup made from the breast of Helen of Troy, something like that. So it's kind of like so. So if it's in a sense, if it's partly in your imagination, you're not going to be disappointed because you're there. You are standing on that spot. Um, they, you know, but they would complain about guides, pushy guides. You know, uh, and or that the guides would sort of get it wrong, or uh, or they prattle, and they're like, you know, uh, I think there's even a little. Prayer, there. It was like um, Zeus protects me from your gods at Olymp your guides at Olympia, and Athena pr- uh, protects me from yours in Athens. Because it's like they were just the sacred guides would come up, uh, so they're up in their face. Yeah, yeah. And then, I think and they, yeah, the Latin name was Mister mystagogi Mister Those who explain the sacred places to strangers. And but there were like little armies on them. And it's and again, it's like when you've got an incipient. Industry—it's a financial transaction, so when, as soon as, because there's money involved, that structure is always there, and it's always going to be slightly annoying and a little degrading and a little, you know, you know. And there's uh, you, know, you know, there's hustlers and there's you know, good guides and bad guides and whatever, and good hotels and bad hotels, and you get ripped off, you know. And it's sort of like um, so that's you know, when you get little quotes like that, it's kind of, that's when it's sort of uh, uh, it's funny, and you go, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, I remember that. Mm. It sounds like these
1: displays of relics are are sort of an equivalent of museums. Was there an equivalent of souvenirs,
0: too? Sure, sure. They would buy, uh, and in fact they've uh, excavated uh, things, like they would have little vials that be engraved with the um, the pharos the the lighthouse in alexandria i mean there's one found in afghanistan you know it was like a, a tourist came from afghanistan mm. uh to egypt you know or, or a merchant who was like you know wanted a souvenir for whatever so yeah, and you'd buy a little you know in greece you would buy um the statues you know you could buy replicas of uh, um you know the most famous um statues there um so yeah uh they they, they definitely were you know the souvenirs and you know and you did want to put your your graffiti there or you would buy copies of books or um uh you know copies of you know you'd try you know if you could get your hands on you know a genuine relic you would probably you know uh if you could get Ulysses sword so there was you know people trying to sell that sort of stuff but usually it would be pretty clear that you know this sort of stuff was too valuable to be you know so and Nero took a few things. Being you know Nero, being Nero, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. he would cart home all this stuff. I mean, he he did a sort of a tour. Um, of, uh, of greece and because the, the romans loved you know the Greco roman culture they would go and they would learn greek and you know to, to go to all these, these these places but he went there he went and competed in the olympic games um he won the um chariot race even though he fell out of his chariot and came in last <laughs> he was awarded the laurels <laughs> you know no, everyone's like oh you know is this is uh, nero yeah oh, yeah okay, in fact he was in the olympic games in 66 ad which i thought was a humorous because uh, in the uh, the hardcover was it was actually called Route 66 AD my copy of your book is called Route yeah. 66 AD and they, um, they changed it because uh, uh, I think it's a very funny title if you know already that it's about ancient Roman tourists right. but if people who didn't know that thought it was some road trip in Arizona <laughs> you know, it's like you know, so people weren't buying it in the you know in the, in the millions it wasn't flying off the shelves quite as fast as they thought so Pagan Holiday which is the name of the first sort of section um, and sort of alludes to Roman holiday or whatever, um, they thought that was a sort of a more accessible title. Mm. Interesting. But, yeah, but Nero did go in 66 AD, and he, but he did the, the great sites, and in, there was a very, the circuit in Greece was Athens, Epidaurus, uh, you go to Delphi, you go to Sparta, you go to Olympia, the shrines, which pretty well, if you go to Athens now, they do do bus tours that will go to all of those places. And you sort of same like, places. the Same places. Oh. And it's like, there's a real, you know, um, and, and, yeah, there's a, it's, uh, yeah, that that hasn't changed, but you, you, the, the, it's different to Egypt because the order's different and, and some people just don't want to go to Sparta because there's nothing there. You know, there's like, it's, and a lot of the Greek sites in the Peloponnesus are, it's kind of, they, a little disappointing. You know, there's, they really got trashed by the barbarians. It was like, you know... And the Greeks... It, it was a small culture. So, you know, it was like... Um, and it became more grandiose in Asia Minor, you know, over in Tur- modern Turkey, which was all Greek uh, up until, you know, the 1920s. The whole coast was very Greek. Hmm. But they were like... They had more money. They had more everything. So, like, Ephesus is, in fact, a more splendid Greek ruin than anything you'll see in Greece because it's like they just... You know, they just had the funds, so and they built it later and bigger and whatever. So, you know, you can go there and, you know, you can walk up the streets. It's a bit like Pompeii. You can walk up the, you know, from the harbour, and you can walk up and go like, oh, wow, and, you know, to this amazing, you know, the you know, the library of sisters It's like, it's really like, oh, shit, this is like, this is impressive. Whereas if you go to, like, Olympia in um, you know, the site of the Olympic Games, there's, you know, a lot of the temples just, you know, there's the foundations, they put up one column, you know, they found enough. Um, the, the cool thing there is they've got the, um, uh, the running track. They excavated the running track and it's got the starting line. So you can see the ancient running track. Yeah, and the, and the starting line where you would sort of like go there and it's like and the finishing line. So you can run the track if you want to. Wow. Yeah. You could even, if you get there early enough, you can run it naked. I
1: used to be a track athlete, so maybe that gave me my pilgrimages. Maybe not naked, but (laughs) it depends on the time of day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound very comfortable, but anyway. Well, you talking about sort of the arbitrariness, or like going to a place where there's actually nothing literal to see, reminds me of another part of uh, the Vagabond's Way, where I paraphrase something that you wrote about. And uh, it says, in the ancient world... um, travelers would go to otherwise unremarkable landscapes associated with mythology, such as the road near Sparta where Penelope was thought to have made up her mind to marry Odysseus, or the overlook in Salamis where an aging Telamon was said to have watched his sons sail off to Troy. And so what what demarcated that these were those places and what
0: did the tourists do there? Well it would be a tradition, you know, it's like like in Homer, he's very, very specific geographically about all this sort of stuff, you know. So and the Greeks, like like the Icelandics as well, you know, like the, oh. the you know, the, the the sagas. The sagas, you know exactly what it is. And, and you go to Iceland and say, Oh yeah, that's when Yarl, you know, did this or whatever, and, and you go there and it's some farmhouse from the 1970s. <laughs> You're <know>, like, okay. <laughs> awesome. But it's like it's part of the very fabric. And so 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 it, things are operating on two levels, really. You can see it. If you want to, you can just see it as like a you know you know a, f- a field or a whatever. But if you've got this imaginative thing going on, it's like wow, uh, you know. And so, um, so one of the interesting things I think is, you know, what I do as a historian, I guess, is actually I sort of get back into that mindset a little bit because uh, when I was doing the Naked Olympics. I know this is a little off the topic but I was like you know a lot of historians don't go back to the places they don't go to the actual locations mm. uh, so w- when you're reading a lot of books about the ancient you know the ancient Greek games they sort of don't quite make sense they're not vivid you know and so I thought oh fuck I'm gonna go and you know I'll go to you know Olympia and I'll go you know I'll make the 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 route down from you know follow the route down from Athens and I'll sort of so you can see exactly what they saw and in, in a sense you know, maybe you don't see anything, and you go to Olympia and there's not that much there, but you can actually put it together where the athletes stayed, and, and, and the route they would have taken, and the entrance into the, into the stadium and, you know, um and then you sort of figure out, wow, there's 40,000 spectators here, you know, and there's like, and there's this dry river, you know, and, and then you sort of go back and you, re, you know, find out about how they're all complaining there's no water and they're all collapsing of dehydration because in the Greek summer, it's like, you know, it's 100 degrees and uh, there's no shade. And so you start to put it together in a sort of a, a way. Um, so, so I... Yeah, I think it's kind of a mistake for historians. So they all they're just using the, the texts and the whatever. But if you go, actually go back to the spots and you know, uh, using your skills as a travel writer, you know, or as a journalist, even you, know, you know, to sort of you can suddenly imbue it with a lot more life. Um, so in in a sense, i you know, I, I I like that ancient Roman thing, where they go like, oh yeah, Tell, you know, Telemachus, you know, yeah right, uh, Theseus here, you know, and it's like. Uh, uh, and yeah, they just loved the ancient world was particularly dense with that sort of reference and Greece in particular because you know um, You know, it's, it's not a huge place. So it's like you, there, there is that richness uh, and, it, and it struck me very much in Iceland when I was there. It's like wow, you can actually follow the, the Sagas from one spot to the next. I think there's a
1: guidebook from the 1990s, which is is a saga guidebook to Iceland um. Just like you mentioned before, there was a brothel guidebook to Paris. And so <laughs> it's sort of, these guidebooks sort of reflect the desires of the person who's taking the trip, I guess. I guess so,
0: yeah, yeah. One
1: thing you've mentioned a couple of times, which I think could be uh, um, worth... Speaking of place, here's New York Sirens again. You know, being in the place actually evokes what it's like to be there a little bit. You've mentioned a couple of times graffiti. Now, in this age we're living in now, it, it is not polite at all to scratch graffiti on tourist monuments. But yet, it sounds like um, the, the ancient Romans did that quite a bit, and the Grand Tourists did too. So, how did that figure into the travel experience?
0: Well, you wanted to sort of the Romans wanted to join themselves to uh, these, and you know, this to antiquity in a sense, because the pyramids being a classic case. You know, like these things have been around, you know, the, since the you know the days of you know, the ancient gods. So, if if you put your name on it, um, you know, you sort of become part of that history. And then, you know, a thousand years from now, your descendants can come and see your name and you were were there. And um, grand tourists were like that as well. They sort of wanted to uh, show that they had been there. And I was just reading that, you know, in the Alhambra in Spain, uh, people love to do that in this beautiful Arab Arab, uh, fortress there. And... uh, it was Washington Irving, this American writer who wrote, you know, you know the, the Headless Horseman story, and, um, and Rip Van Winkle. He went there in 1829, and he was a little shocked. And he was like, uh, he was like, hey, we got we got to do something about this. So he invented the visitor book, you know, so people could come, and they would write. Their names in the visitor book, instead of um, you know defacing the uh, the monument, and uh, so he was actually credited as being like the first modern tourist, in a, you know, you know, you know, by the Spanish at least, <laughs> like you know, and he was also very interested in social things. He was interested in the festivals, uh, in the um, uh, you know, you know, this in the flamenco and in musicians and whatever this real Spanish uh, culture, whereas and that's a big difference. The Romans weren't in particular they found you know they like they went they liked the greek the greco-roman culture which was you know, the, which is the great overlay of uh, of the mediterranean anyway so you know the, all the city, they could go all, all the way to uh, ephesus and it'd be pretty well you know, they, could, they knew what they would have to eat. You know, they were like the, the roads and the, the the sculptures and whatever would be part of this this culture. It was only Egypt was the exotic, you know, the other, um, but they and they interpreted it through their own lens. Uh, so, it was, so it was really like in the 19th century, people are starting to go, hmm, that's kind of interesting. You know, it's like uh, uh, you know misinterpreting it much of the time, and you know, creating the, the you know this Orientalist view in you know like Flaubert going to um, Egypt. You know, mm. and it's all this sort of sensual um Sexualizing and sort of like this colonial project, but still, you know, uh, they were interested in um, You know the 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 other the other culture in a way that the Romans just weren't
1: Your story about Washington Irving reminds me of a thing I covered in my book souvenir, which is um, it used to be that tourists grand tourists would often carve things off of a given site and in fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams went to Shakespeare's house and did the same thing in the late 18th century, which just seems preposterous now that they would take a, one of Shakespeare's chair. Now, who knows if it was really Shakespeare's chair, but they would keep those as souvenirs. Well, this was a problem at Mount Vernon, the um, uh, George Washington's home in Virginia, which in the 19th century was sort of declining and it didn't really have much of an income and people were taking the molding boards from George Washington's bedroom and stuff. And so they started a gift shop So the Washington Irving pioneered the uh, guest book, the gift shop I think has some of its origins in Mount Vernon where they're trying to keep tourists from destroying the place.
0: Like a piece of the true cross I guess, you know, it's like that was the, you know, everyone was going over to um, the, the Holy Land and, you know, buying this, <laughs> or, or um, and, and of course there's huge industry, and like here's, a, have a, uh, here's another piece of the true cross that's scattered everywhere and like and fake relics and whatever, like there's, you know a friend David Farley um, wrote a book about, you know, the Jesus as foreskin and there's like a dozen of them just scattered around you know um uh but there's that that thing that idea of having a you know a possession uh uh it, it it has deep roots and um and the graffiti is related to that and it was there was recently a scandal i mean i wrote a thing for the new york times about it there was a chinese tourist who um you know, snuck up somewhere, uh, maybe it was in Egypt, and sort of did some graffiti and was arrested. It was a huge sort of denounced on social media and whatever, but it's a tradition, you know, and and the, and the Chinese are kind of new to tourism in a, in, a, hmm. in a way, so they're like, yeah, know, it's sort of a, there seems to be some human impulse.
1: Yeah, well, I think when you have, because the pyramids, I think, well, actually, Flaubert talks about he, just how irritating uh, the graffiti was on the pyramids. Like, here's some, you know, shoe salesman from London painting a big sign on the pyramids, and that bothered him. Of course, Mark Twain, when he traveled, he said he'd seen enough pieces of the True Cross, you know, in, in European cathedrals to have, like, a whole forest of True Crosses. So it's, so it's an ongoing thing, and it's, I, I guess it's, it's a mix of... Irid- I guess it's a problem when mass tourism kicks in. Because if a few aristocrats are are carving their names in some monument in Egypt or or Italy, it's not that big of a problem, but when you have thousands per year it's more so
0: right but that also kicks into the snobbery you know it's like it's, it's like okay we can do it but it's like you know if it's actually but it's i mean that problem and, and national park you know everything everything now like you know national parks you know it's like if it was only in 1872 when yellowstone you know was declared you know it was like a major you know you had to be rich and you know and have a couple of months spare to go and Go into Yellowstone and camp and do whatever. Once it becomes a a flood, suddenly it it also degrades the environment, you know. And so, uh, um, you know, you read about the first tourists; they would throw shit into um, Old Faithful to try and make it explode, you know. And they're like, you know, which is, I suppose, if it only happens once a month, it's probably not, you know, not so bad. But if it's suddenly people are doing it every day, it's like, oh, you know, it's actually destroying it. Uh, And that is a sort of a it's everywhere now, you know, it's so, like, you know, the, the Alhambra was, uh, you, and, and you're always trying to get special access to things. And, um, you know, like, God, even the Vatican Museums, or in the Vatican, yeah, the museums, you could you know, there's now there's expensive tours you can go in at night because there's not that many tourists there. Or, um, you know, or Bill Clinton or whatever, when he visits, he gets a special, you know, night tour or whatever, or uh, movie stars or, you know, George Clooney or whatever. So, yeah, there's, there's this... It's, all, it's, it's an ongoing struggle, I guess. You know?
1: When, when uh, my Paris class this summer, my students were doing a writing exercise around the Louvre, which was in our classroom, and they were observing other tourists you know, as, as part of the exercise, and they realized that all the tourists were obsessed with something on the other side of the courtyard, and it was Benefer, it was Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, walking out of their private tour of the Louvre on the, on, when it was closed. And so this thing keeps going and going.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it'll just come up with new incarnations as uh, as the world becomes you know more crowded and you know people get richer. You know, it's I mean, we're in a new gilded age, as is often said. So it's kind of like the super rich are now you know coming up with things much just as they did you know in more and more wacky you know ways to, to to distance themselves.
1: The historical experience of tourism is something you know very well. And so, like, what can we learn from the way travel has always played out? How have things changed, and what do you think will never change?
0: Ooh, um gosh. I mean, I think, you know, there is a whole trope in travel writing that, you know, like, it's everything's, you know, why travel? Because it's like everywhere has been visited and everywhere is, you know, that it's depressing to go to um, Somewhere, and you know, you know, trek to the end of you know the some Him- Himalayan valley and find you know ten people camped there, or you know, go to base camp in you know Everest, and it's a, that it's something inherently depressing and that you shouldn't travel. But part of the th- thing about my book is, um, you know, I, I you know, y- sure, millions of people go to Rome, uh, and I was doing the same thing, and I was, you know, million, you know, millions go to Cairo, millions go to um, these these same places, but. Uh, it's not actually the same experience, you know, because no one has quite the same experience. It's actually a unique thing and you can make it your own and it, uh, you know, and still, it's still worth doing. It's just you have to be sort of, uh, look at it in a, and not be, you know, in, in an original sort of way and sort of uh, uh, it, with your own, you know, your, your own eyes. Uh, and, and, and it's still worth doing, it's still, travel is still, awesome and it's like you do have to go out and educate yourself and learn about the world uh, and uh, you know especially in the United States where it's like not that you know percentage wise not that many people do so it's like you sh- it, it, it is still a worthwhile thing so I guess that is uh, my lesson I don't know <laughs> my, my, my takeaway whatever that is.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Tony Parate's book, Pagan Holiday, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviatorrolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.